Well, it's really nice to be back in Moody Spurn uh, with you today. Thank you for the invitation, Graham, to come back again. I was to hit a button, wasn't it? I didn't do it. What about that? So, um, I did wonder what I should speak on. Um, and I had almost finished a little series on the book of Ruth and I just had one section that I wanted still to look at so I thought we'll try and finish that off today. Ruth chapter 4 and reading from verse 13. Ruth 4 reading from verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, or Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz. And Boaz, the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Of course, um, one little detail which is of interest is that Boaz is the son of Salmon, and Salmon is the husband of um, Rahab, uh, which is an interesting little detail. There was one other verse that I wanted to read to you, and it was from the family tree, if you will, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And so the, Matthew is really giving us the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus. And I'm not reading it all, I'm just breaking into it. And he says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And of course that continues right through uh, to Christ. Just a prayer please, and then we'll turn our thoughts to God's word. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet together. It's a privilege to be able to come and sing your praise, something that some of us have missed being able to do in a meaningful way. And so we thank you that the opportunity has returned and, and, and together we can sing 
and extol your great name and bless you, Lord, in our words and from our hearts for your goodness to us. We thank you for this book that you've given to us to guide us and direct us on the journey of life and to instruct us and to direct us towards Christ, but Lord, not just towards Christ, towards uh, you and uh, to guide us on the journey of life. So as we ponder this passage in, in the depths of the Old Testament, just a little passage at the end of Ruth, we pray that you will be our teacher and we pray that you'll come and meet us on the pages of Scripture. And we pray that you'll minister to our hearts. Some of us are weary and feel broken and we desperately crave your uh, a sense of your uplifting spirit and we pray that you'll minister to each of us just right where we are and just exactly as we need in the way that only you can and we pray for your help and blessing for all of us both the speaker and all of us as we listen and place ourselves under the authority of this book and your word we pray that you will help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll try and do without these glasses. As I get older, I find I can hardly read uh, without them. We can all think, I think, of historical moments in history, key events. Think of the 1st of September, 1939, when Germany invaded Poland and uh, initiated, if you will, the Second World War. Some will be able to remember, I can still remember the day as if it was yesterday, the 11th of September 2001, when um, over 3,000 victims died uh, as 19 members of the Al-Qaeda hijacked four planes, flew two of them into the Twin Towers in New York, one of them into the Pentagon and the fourth one crashing in a field in Pennsylvania. That was a day, I think, that changed modern history as, as we know it. We could think of the 4th of November 2008. It was a momentous day when the Americans, for the first time in their history, elected a black African president. We could think about the 31st of December, which is the anniversary of the outbreak of COVID, or the 29th of January 2020 was the day when there was the first confirmed case of COVID uh, in the United Kingdom. But the story of Ruth makes it clear that these are not the only events that shape history. Ruth made history when she decided to leave her home in Moab among the worship, worshippers of Molech, among other gods, for a life among God's people. In fact, Every moment in Ruth's life, I would be prepared to argue, was a God moment. Every moment in Ruth's life was a God moment. As she moved slowly and surely to the point of taking her place in the family tree, not only of David, Israel's greatest king, but of the Lord Jesus, who was David's greatest son. And the book of Ruth, I think, reminds us that we too are making history. There's no telling what God will do with our ordinary lives or with our legacy 
and the impact that that legacy will have on others. The conversations that we've had and the lives that we've touched last week, the conversations that we, that we will have this week, there's no telling what the impact of those conversations and our influences will be for life and for eternity. Every day that you live, every day that you live, you are making history. So let's not think for a single moment that our <coughs> lives are meaningless and without purpose. God has a purpose for every one of us and we must look beyond the daily grind of life and think about what God is doing in us and doing through us and the influence our lives are having on the future, on the present and the future and indeed eternity. A man walked into a building site, onto a building site and asked uh, some of the tradesmen what they were doing. The first one said, well, I'm building bricks. Another man says, well, I'm trying to put up a stud partition. Eventually he came to another man and his face was aglow and he says, I am building a cathedral. And somehow I think we lose sight of the bigger picture in the daily grind of life. God is using us for eternal purposes. So let's remember that there's more to the picture than cement bricks. We're building for eternity. We're laying up treasure in heaven. We are serving the purpose of an eternal God. Three things that I want to camp on from this passage. I want you, first of all, to think with me about the fact that biblical patterns were followed. Um, then I want you to think about the fact that God's providence was acknowledged by uh, the women in, in Bethlehem as Ruth gives birth. And these women start to reflect. They give, they acknowledge God's providence. So biblical patterns are followed. Um, there's an acknowledgement of God's providence. And finally, just as we wrap up at the end, I want you to notice that potential was realized as Ruth becomes, takes her place in the family tree of Christ. And, an ordinary girl from a pagan country or a pagan place like Moab takes her place in the family tree of Christ and from her descendants comes the savior of the world. Potential is realized. So those are the three things. First of all, then biblical patterns are followed. The Bible lays down a number of clear patterns for life and we see them, those patterns being clearly followed in scripture on occasions and other points we see people diverting diverging from those patterns and often reaping the consequences well there are two things that struck me about this uh, particular passage in terms of biblical patterns and the first is that this couple were married that's the first thing that i just want because that's how it opens doesn't it it says right at the beginning so boaz took ruth and she became his wife or in the words of eugene peterson um, Boaz married Ruth and they had a son and it, that's where this passage that we've read begins and I feel in the 21st century that those words Boaz married Ruth is worth spending just a moment on um, marriage was God's idea it was not something that two lovebirds dreamed up and decided would be a good thing after God created this world, he saw that it was, wasn't good for 
a man to be on his own and he decided to create a companion for him, somebody who was different from him, yet comparable to him, comparably different. She brought something into his life that he didn't have and of course vice versa. Someone who was unlike the animals in the garden that he uh, lived in, somebody that could share his heart and his life and his journey with him. And the guidelines for this relationship, which God formed, no one else formed, no one else came up with this idea. This, the guidelines for this relationship that God formed are set out in Genesis chapter two, verse 24. A man is to leave his father and mother, and Adam didn't have a father and mother to leave. And so that's not for Adam's benefit, it's for the benefit of all succeeding generations. A man is to leave his father and mother, he's to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And there are three steps in that journey. There's leaving of father and mother, there's a clearing of the de decks to form a new family unit. A new family unit is to be formed. And, and for that new family unit to be formed, there's got to be a breaking free from old commitments and old ties. And new priorities begin to be formed. Leave your father and mother. And then you're to be joined to your wife or you're to cleave to your wife, one of the older versions says. There's to be a, a, a gluing together. That's the word, the Hebrew words that's used it. It's, it can be used in other places for gluing something together. Two hearts are to be glued together. Two lives are to be glued together emotionally. And in terms of the direction and purpose of their lives, it's no longer two, it's, it's now one. And so two people become one and their lives merge and, and they go on the journey together. And finally, there is, of course, they are to become one flesh which have, would appear to speak of the consummation of marriage. So God intended from that moment onwards that they would enjoy a kind of companionship and fulfillment that he intended for marriage, that, that they would be partners, that they would complement each other, that they would love each other, that they would enjoy each other's company. And that is the process that Boaz and Ruth followed in this passage. They made a lifelong commitment to each other. I recently came across this uh, sort of uh, quote in regard to the commitment that is made by a man and woman on the day that they are married. And I, I've had cause to work through some stuff with some people recently. And this really resonated with me. Here, here is the commitment that Boaz made to Ruth. In their commitment to the unity of marriage, the couple promised to be faithful to each other, even if poverty and disease should come upon them. They vow before God to be faithful, even if they meet a more attractive, more intelligent and more compassionate person. The wife vows to be faithful if her husband loses his high paying job, his esteem before men, his mental faculties, his youthful vigor. She commits to him, even if he doesn't measure up to the standard that God has set for him. Even when he does not love her as Christ loves the church. A husband vows to be faithful to his wife, even if she loses her beauty, her charm, her tenderness. His commitment remains steadfast, 
even when she is unsubmissive, disrespectful, and unable to manage the household well. Through it all, the two will remain one flesh. That's a huge commitment that's being made by one person to another. I think it's fair to say that marriage has fallen on fairly hard times. And I just wanted to take a minute or two to say that God has a high view of marriage and he's committed to it. He created it. He uh, not only created it, he's not only committed to it, but it's, it's something that he wants. And he wants a husband and wife to be committed to each other and, and to love each other and to enjoy each other and to journey on together. And that is the biblical pattern that's being followed here in, in the book of Ruth, in the story of Boaz and Ruth. Well, here's the second thing that I want you to think about. Not only are biblical patterns followed, and there are a number of young people here today, and I, I want you to listen to that. That is the Bible's that is the Bible's pattern. That's God's pattern for human relationships. Someone came to me recently and said, you know, what is marriage anyway? And it's just a piece of paper. And it is just a piece of paper, but it's a big piece of paper that stops you from just walking away when the going gets tough. And it's a piece of paper which, which, which cements a relationship in the way that God intended it to be cemented in, the, in terms of making a covenant with someone else. And, and the piece of paper is really important. Here's the second thing that I want you to think about. Not only did uh, Boaz marry Ruth or the, the marriage of this couple, but the prayers of the, of the elders in verse 11 of this passage. If you look at verse 11, it says... Um, uh, if I can read this without my glasses, which I can. What's happening to me? Verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. And may the Lord make this woman, make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be fam famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So you see the prayers of the elders at the marriage of this couple. Um, the response of the elders, the leaders of the town, was to pray for this couple. They, they, um, from the very moment this couple began to look as if they were going to become a couple, these newlyweds, the first thing that happens is that the town's elders pray for them. And they pray that the Lord would make uh, Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Of course, Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob. Remember Jacob and the surplanter and the schemer from whom the children of Israel descended. Um, Jacob and his 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they're praying that Ruth will become like his wives, Rachel and Leah, of course, and, and, and uh, that's what they're praying for. And, and they pray that God will bless the next generation of children born to Ruth. And they pray that God would make Boaz into a man of renown. And with his union, 
with, through his union with this young Moabite woman. So the Bethlehemites descended from Perez, who was one of the twins born to Judah, Judah and Tamar. And you can read about that in First Chronicles chapter uh, 2, and uh, the whole story of Judah and Tamar. One of our sons, one of the sons born out of that whole saga was a man called Perez. And the people of Bethlehem descended from Perez. So here's the town's elders, they're praying that Boaz will become like Perez, fruitful, and that God will bless him with a family and establish him as, as the people of Bethlehem have been established where they have been established. And one of the things that struck me about this book as I reflected on it in preparation for today is just the, the theme of prayer that runs throughout it. A theme of prayer running throughout this little book. So Naomi prays for her daughter-in-laws as she pleads with them to return to Moab at the borders between um, Bethlehem and, and Moab, wherever that was. And she pleaded with them to go back and she prayed that God would bless them. And then Boaz arrived in the field and uh, to, to view his workers or to check on his workers. And, and how, what did he say? The Lord be with you. That's a prayer, isn't it? The Lord be with you. He says. And then in chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz prays for Ruth. As soon as her identity became known to him, he says he prayed that God would reward her for her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And then when Ruth returns with all that grain to Naomi, Naomi erupts and gives thanks to God for how God has been with Ruth and helped her that day in her labors. And here at, at the city gates, we can see as this newly wed couple begin to merge their lives together, what we see happening is the elders praying for them. And it's not that the prayers were long and eloquent and that they're filled with a bunch of jargon. But it is that these people, some of them at least, seemed to develop a relationship with God that was real, where they spoke to him, where it was natural for them to speak to God, be almost as natural for them to speak to God as it was for them to speak to one another. The Lord be with you. That's a prayer. He's talking to God as, as he speaks to his, his workers. Prayerfulness. Now, I said a few minutes ago that marriage has hit on, on hard times, and I think it has hit on hard times. A third of all marriages in the UK will end in divorce. And I think, I think the whole institution of marriage is being absolutely assaulted as we speak in society uh, as a whole. And, the, and I, I, I realize that marriage is difficult. Listen, I've been married for a long time. I can't, I should know how long. <laughs> I got married in 1992. So whatever that, that'll be, what will that be? 30 years next year? So there you go. Hey? Ages. Ages. Well, you know, I know that marriage can be tough. And there are seasons, tough seasons in life. But... But what I've noticed is, is even just recently painfully helping a couple and watching their marriage dissolve and both of them Christians and wondering how can this ever be? How can this ever be that two people who supposedly love God just don't seem to be able to work things out? How can this be? And I wonder if it's because we've lost something of what 
Ruth's generation had a sense of prayerfulness where we pray for one another and we pray for one another's marriages and relationships and where we ask God to help these cup, this couple in their relationship and get over their difficulties and go on to enjoy everything that God intends them to enjoy. You think we pray for marriages as much as we should or as much as we see taking place here in the book of, of Ruth? Maybe that's one of our downfallings. Maybe that's one of the reasons that marriage has hit on such hard times is because we don't pray for marriages enough. And I, I want to encourage you as a church to, to pray for one another and pray for one another's marriages. Pray that God will keep them strong and pray that God will keep us faithful to each other and pray that God will give us the tenacity that we need to work through the difficult seasons and get through them and go on to enjoy all that God wants us to enjoy. Well, biblical patterns were followed. Enough said about that. Here's a second thing. God's providence was acknowledged. God's providence was acknowledged. Um, his providence in the life of Naomi and Ruth. A couple of quick things about that. First of all, the women as they erupt in praise at, at the wedding and uh, after the birth of uh, Ruth's son, they acknowledge God's provision. God's provision of a baby. God enabled Ruth to conceive. In fact, we're told that in, in this story. You know, it's not just that... Um, Boaz made love or, and Ruth made love and they had a, had a baby. It's not as simple as that. It's God enabled her to conceive. And it's like the author of scripture just wants to stop and say, just remember that birth is more than a biological fact. Just remember that God is the giver of life. And, and that's something which is fairly consistent throughout Scripture, isn't it? God is the giver of life. We can tinker with life and fool around with life a little bit in cells and human cells, but God is the giver of life. And uh, isn't it the psalmist who says that children are a heritage from the Lord, something that the Lord gives and bestows? In another place, doesn't the psalmist say, you know, um, you knit me together in my mother's womb or in the depths of the earth, in the darkness, when no one else was around and no one else could see me being formed. You're the one that knit me together. And the writer of Ecclesiastes makes the point about a pregnant woman in chapter 11, verse 5, that how you do not know how a pregnant woman comes to have a body and a spirit in her womb. Because there's more than just a body there, there's a spirit there, there's a living soul there. So I want to say to you, God, God enabled her to conceive. And of course, that's not something that any couple can take for granted. And, and in the journey of life, I've, I've known what it's like to sit with couples who long to have a, a, a child, but are unable to have a child. No one can take that for granted. But sometimes God and grants that a, a wife can conceive and, and give birth to a child. And, and what a privilege. What, what a joy. The other day I was walking uh, out and about and I heard some kids playing on a trampoline and I heard them laugh and I just thought, the joy of an innocent child's laughter. What a privilege to be involved in the lives of these little creatures that God gives to us. And we have the opportunity to influence them and shape them and direct them. What a privilege. 
just to sit and listen to them, to sit and watch them play in all of their innocence. But what a responsibility to have these little people in our lives that God gives to us to, to shape and influence and direct. What a responsibility. And I'm at a stage in life where my kids are going left, right and center. And I've only got one son who's almost twice my height still at home. And, and you start to think about the influence that you've had on them during the course of their early years. And you wonder if you did enough and should you've done more and what kind of an impact have you had on them and have you set them up for God and for good and for the future. So I just want to say to you, listen, these little children that are in your lives, whether it's children or grandchildren or friends, children or nieces or nephews or whoever they are listen that they are more than a biological accident god brought them into your life and given you a huge privilege and a huge opportunity but a huge responsibility so we need to take it seriously the second thing that they give thanks to god for by way of provision is the provision of boaz the women gave thanks to God for the fact that God had not le left Naomi without a kinsman redeemer. God had not left Naomi destitute. He provided Boaz to redeem her, to raise up a son and preserve the name of her family, to support her when she was unable to support herself. God had been good to both Naomi and to Ruth, but they give thanks for the fact that God had not abandoned Naomi in giving Ruth a son. And that made me think, you know, here's, so, the, so, 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 you know, Ruth gives birth to a baby and these women are just praising God for his goodness. And he hasn't left Naomi destitute. And it just made me think a little bit about how good God has been to me. We live in a country where food is so abundant that it's a constant fight. To, it's a constant battle to fight off the urge to eat. That's how privileged we are. But there's people in other countries who will get up today and who won't have enough to eat, who maybe won't have anything to eat. We get up in the morning and we have to choose what we're going to wear, but there are other people in, in the world and they don't have that luxury to decide will they put on jeans or will they put on chinos. They have one outfit and it's wearing thin and they're not sure where their next outfit will come from. Oh, the goodness to God, the goodness of God to us is unbelievable. It's beyond telling. But when it comes to a redeemer, how good has God been to us? I was thinking about that earlier when someone prayed. God hasn't left us destitute in a barren wilderness of sin. God raised up a redeemer to change our darkness into light. Our sorrow into joy, our sin into the terrain of forgiveness. He raised up Jesus to provide spiritual cleansing, to rescue us from the danger of being separated from him forever. The God who created us and loved us and formed us for his good pleasure. God didn't leave us cut off and destitute, just like he didn't leave Naomi or Ruth, but Naomi in particular destitute in the wilderness of Moab, didn't leave her destitute even when she came back to Bethlehem, raised up a redeemer for her. How good has God been to, to me in, in raising up a redeemer? I was thinking about this too when I was 
not yesterday, the day before I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about it again this morning as I drove over here, and I wasn't listening to Rick Warren, I was listening to somebody singing a song, I am no longer a slave, I am a child of God. What a privilege that is. But only because there's a redeemer, and only because God didn't leave us destitute. Well, here's the third thing that they praised God for by way of God's provision, the provision of a daughter-in-law. They acknowledged that Ruth was another one of God's wonderful provisions for Naomi. She's better than seven sons. So Ruth's better than seven sons. You wouldn't be asking men to shuffle tables around if Ruth was here. She could do the work of ten, seven men, easy. Ruth and, uh, had given Naomi what no son could give her, a, a grandson, to preserve the name of her family and to preserve her family line. No son could do that for, for, for Naomi, but Ruth had done it. And it's a wonderful thing to think about Ruth as a gift of from God to Naomi, even in those black days when she was losing her husband and her sons, and they were dark days. She was not without the provision or the help or the blessing of God, because God gave her as a daughter-in-law in the midst of all of that darkness, where she lost her husband and she lost her two sons. In the middle of all of that, God gave her the provision of a wonderful, wonderful daughter-in-law. And these women acknowledged that God had provided for Naomi in that capacity. So often we allow the difficulties to block out the goodness of God on other fronts. We're like the nine lepers. We fail to go back and give thanks to God for the blessings that he has given to us. And the hymn writer is right when he asks us to count our many blessings and name them one by one. And we might just be surprised at what the Lord has done. God has been good to us. There are blessings to be traced in every turn of life. I heard about a man who had lost all of his money on investments during the financial crash in 2008. And he was just devastated and in the pits. And so the minister went to visit him and, and uh, said to him, what's wrong with you? Oh, he says, I've lost everything. You've lost everything, said the minister. I'm sorry to hear that your wife has died and that all your children have died. I'm sorry to hear that you've lost your health and you must have a terminal condition. Oh, he says, what are you talking about? I haven't lost them. Well, isn't that how it is in life? That in the darkness, we somehow lose sight of some of the other blessings that God gives to us. And that's not to say that life is not tough or that there aren't dark periods, but in the middle of all of that, there are other blessings that God has given to us that we ought not to lose sight of. And the last thing with this, before we move on to our final point is, they give thanks to God for his plan. And it's clear that, that God is at work here, isn't it? When you think about the book of Ruth, it's, it's nothing more than a series of setbacks. Naomi and her husband have to leave their hometown because of famine. They go to Moab and Moab, Naomi's only in Moab a short while and she loses her husband. And, and then she loses her two sons. All three of them die. And then Naomi's two sons uh, leave two widows and, and uh, 
Naomi decides that she's going to return to Bethlehem and uh, Ruth's clinging to Naomi at the end of the first chapter as she makes her way back to Bethlehem. But the first chapter ends with Naomi's words ringing in our ears. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the hand of the Lord has gone against me. That's how chapter one ends. Chapter two, although there's hope in chapter two, the bitterness continues. Because although Ruth met Boaz, he failed to make any moves towards marrying her. And in chapter two, Ruth is asked to simply wait on God. In chapter three, we see that Naomi and Ruth take matters into their own hands. Ruth goes out to the field or the threshing floor and proposes marriage to him. And just when you think there's an end in sight to their misery and their widowhood and the fact that they have no children for their future, just when you think the end is in sight, another clangor falls into the mix. Can't do it. There's a, a closer kinsman redeemer than me, so I can't proceed. And it's just one set of setbacks after another, one after another in the story of Ruth. But here we see that as Boaz marries Ruth, here we see that God has worked out his purposes. And this woman um, takes her place not only as the great grandmother of, or the Yes, the great grandmother of David, but also uh, in the family tree of, of Jesus. And I, I just want to say this to you. The book of Ruth shows us that life, the life of the godly is not a highway to heaven. You know, like you're coming out of Glasgow on the M8 and there's like six lanes and you're trying to decide, am I taking the left lane going to Stirling, the right going to Edinburgh? And, and so there's all these lanes, just this huge straight stretch. That's not life. Life's more like the West Highland Way with its turns and its twists and up over rocks and you're clamoring with both hands and at the end of the day you wonder you're so weary you wonder if you can face another day. That's life. The West Highland Way is life. But the book of Ruth wants us to see that although road is twisty and hilly, life is twisty and hilly. It's the right road, the Christian road. The book of Ruth wants us to see that although there are steep climbs and stark, sharp twists, we must never, ever abandon the believe or entertain the thought that God has abandoned us. Never. Because God never abandoned Naomi or Ruth. Never. He was with them every step of the journey, steering their lives towards this conclusion when they would take their place in the family tree of Jesus. Well, finally, and with this I'll be finished, potential is realized. If the book of Ruth reminds us of anything, it reminds us that God uses ordinary people. The book of Ruth is not about emperors or philosophers. It's not about the powerful or the influential. It's the story of peasants. Maybe slightly more important peasants because uh, Elimelech was an Ephrathite in Bethlehem. He may have come from sort of slightly higher end of peasantry, but they were peasants. And they worked the fields and they earned enough, they planted and they sowed and, and, and they harvested and they made enough to eat the next year. Just, and as you go through this story, you think to yourself, why are we looking at the lives of such ordinary people? And, and even Ruth was a pagan worshipper from Moab. 
Yet God takes this ordinary girl and this ordinary family and he does something extraordinary with it. Because he makes them the descendants or the great grandparents of Israel's greatest king. And he places them firmly in the family tree of Jesus, ordinary people. And, and you know, when you read through the Bible again and again and again, this is what you see. How many important people did God use? Not many, a few, but not many. Abraham, a moon worshiper in Mesopotamia. David, they didn't even want to call him to come and meet the prophet when he went to anoint a future king of Israel. There's just a boy out in the fields. Moses, on the run from, on the run from Egypt because he had killed someone with his bare hands. Mary, the mother of Jesus, just a, a teenage girl giving birth to the savior of the world, the vehicle through whom God entered history. Again and again and again throughout the, the 12 disciples, fishermen and farm workers, God picks up ordinary people and does something extraordinary often with them. And there's no telling what God will do with you and with your ordinary life and with my ordinary life. And, and here is the second thing, ordinary people, potential realized and ordinary experiences. Not only are the people themselves significant, but the experiences of their lives are deeply significant. The steps that were being taken, taken in the book of Ruth all those years ago were momentous, were momentous for events that would take place thousands of years later were momentous steps. Yet if you had spoken to Naomi and Ruth, they would have felt that their lives were ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. When Boaz went out to the field that day, it was just another day when he was going to check on his workers. When Ruth went to gather some grain, it was just another field. She had no idea who even owned the field till she got there. And even when she married, she just thought that she was getting married and that she would have a son. And it was also very, very ordinary. Yet those events were momentous. And Ruth probably never imagined that all those years later from her children, from her descendants would come the savior of the world. And our experiences may not be weaving their way into the family of David or even of Jesus, but only eternity will reveal the full significance of every experience of every minute of every passing day in your life. Every moment counts. Every moment counts. We need to be determined to fill every moment of our life for the glory of God. Susanna Wesley gave birth to 19 children before there was such a thing as pain relief or disposable nappies. Nine of her children died in infancy. To get a moment's peace, she would throw her apron over her head, sitting at the fire. A mundane life, cooking, washing, and trying to tend to the needs of a preaching husband. But from her mundane life and from her mundane home came two boys that would change the face of British history. Came a boy whose songs we would still sing generations later. There's no telling what God can do with an ordinary life and what God wants to do with your ordinary life. Let's live our moments in the knowledge that God has a purpose in every one of them and let's live them for God.
I'll hand back to Graham.